0: Hi, everybody. It's Brian Johnson. Thanks for downloading this episode of Device Talks Podcast. I know it's been a while since we've uh, released an interview, but we've been a little bit busy. We've been putting together our 2016 Device Talks Live series. Uh, We had our show in Raleigh-Durham on February 29th, and we'll have three other shows, Uh, Minnesota on June 6th, Boston on September 28th, and back to Irvine, California on December 12th. We're having an, an amazing lineup this year. We'll be featuring CEOs and executives from Smith's Medical, uh, from Google, and J&J's new venture, Verb Surgical. And we're going to have voices from Medtronic, St. Jude Medical, and many, many more. So stay tuned to talks.com for that uh, show information. For those show information, we're just about to launch the Minnesota show information. So be sure to come in, register, take advantage of early rates. A couple of cool things we're doing this year. We're actually expanding the program to include more workshops. So the program will start at about one o'clock in the afternoon and go all the way through till eight o'clock. So it's a full day, but I really, I promise it's going to be a great time. Uh, we work really hard on making sure that these programs uh, touch on the kind of content and uh, that you need to run your medical device company, and we also, um, you know, make the same commitment to uh, high-quality programming. So this episode of Device Talks is featuring former Medtronic chairman Bill Hawkins. Um, and it's, and it's close to my heart. Bill Hawkins was probably the first major, major CEO uh, we landed at Device Talks for an interview um, back in uh, 2010. We launched the site in 2009. And at the time, I always said, you know, let's put uh, these companies... Um, these major companies, let's put them you know, up on a board and let's just kind of peck through and get every one of those CEOs on the record on mass device. And that was kind of how uh, we, we viewed our success, how many people we could get um, on the record uh, specifically to us, not picked up quotes, not things that we uh, it got third hand or emailed to us but we really wanted uh, people talking directly to mass device so you would know as our readers um, that we were trying to do our best to bring those voices of the industry together so uh, back in 2010 we were a fledgling website um, and I made a request for uh, then Medtronic CEO and Chairman Bill Hawkins and uh, I was delighted when we got word back that uh, from the PR team that uh, Bill would be happy to do the interview that he was a reader of our site and, uh, was often, uh, passing around, um, articles that we had written. So that was a, that was a huge uh, confidence driver for us. And over the years that I've been doing device talks, I really, um, you know, kept wanting to find a, a time and a place that we could, uh, bring him on stage and interview him. Because I think Bill is, is, is um, you know, he's a visionary guy. He's a good leader, um. You know, he had, a, he had a, a good tenure at Medtronic, although it was, it was marked by a, a lot of challenges. And, and in this interview, I think you'll see that he really uh, is quite honest about those and goes into them in great detail. Of course, Medtronic today is uh, doing extremely well and under the um, new tenure of Omar Ishrak. Um, so I wanted to kind of step back and, and, and take a look at his years at Medtronic, um, just to kind of talk to him about what, it, what it's like to lead the world's largest medical device company. Uh, and, and Bill also has had a, a stellar 25 year career in the corner office uh, as CEO of companies, you know, large and small. And he's experienced some of the most um, unique experiences you can experience, I mean he was, uh, at the drug company Wyeth, when the FenFen Fen scandal happened, they had to do uh, the recall of that on the diet pill. Uh, his first year at Medtronic, he had to make a, a, a massive decision on a recall in the Sprint Fidelis leads. Um, we go into all that, uh, but kind of just rounding out the thought, uh, we, we were planning on a fourth uh, device talk show this year, a live show. And we uh, settled on the Southeast because we haven't, we've been to the East Coast, the Midwest, the West Coast, uh, but we, we haven't tapped the Southeast. And uh, my friend Jason Rupp, who took over SEMDA, um, convinced us to come on down to Raleigh-Durham area of Research Triangle. Uh, where there's great energy, and to do a show down there. And once we decided to do that there, we said to ourselves, well, we have to get Bill Hawkins because he is uh, local to that area, and uh, it'll be kind of our homecoming show. So the interview you're about to hear is uh, from our February 29th Device Talks Raleigh show. It was a, a terrific night, and I thank everybody that came out Thanks especially to the CED Life Science Conference, who was our partner, and to uh, Jason and SEMDA, um, the Southeast Medical Device Association. They're having their annual meeting coming up um, in April, so be sure to take a look at that. That's down in Memphis. And please keep staying tuned to Device Talks. I promise we're going to have another full slate of uh, great podcasts to go with our live events. So, device so visit us at device to find out more information and now thanks for listening to device talks podcast you know i knew you went to school here uh but i didn't know how much this area was home to you your father he was the mayor of durham for four years he'll figure <laughs> <laughs> so your dad was in politics what, what, what that's it why I'm in medicine <laughs>
1: <laughs> what did your dad's experience in politics teach you about leadership well I always admired his ability to, to connect with people in you know, all sort of walks of life you know as a mayor he had a you know a, a diverse uh, population and uh, and it was his responsibility to kind of set the tone and he I uh, used to kind of marvel at uh, how he would, you know, give talks and connect with people sort of on a one-on-one basis. And so, I mean, he taught me really just to be yourself, to be a good person and recognize that, you know, we all, you know, are, have something to, to contribute. What what led him into uh, politics? Was it? Uh, That's a good question. I, you know, I, uh, he, he know, always had a sort of a calling to to really give back to the community. Um, He uh, had uh, a small real estate business, but he got involved in the city council, became sort of head of the Chamber of Commerce. He ended up, um, when he was mayor, got involved with Lizzo Hodges and helped really bring about the Research uh, Triangle Park. He ended up serving on the Raleigh-Durham Airport Authority, and so he loved this area. He loved Durham. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, loved North Carolina, and he felt that it was a privilege to be able to be a good uh, kind of public servant. Uh, How many terms is that? Four years? Is that, was that one or two? No, it was just one year. Yeah. Yeah. It was... Uh, that, was that was enough. Yeah. <laughs> He ran into a buzzsaw in that re election, or did he just Yeah, that I was you know, done? I, I, I think he actually had hoped to be re elected, but um, it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but he didn't stop. I mean, that was a thing that, you know, I think about even when I parallel my career at Metronic when I stepped down. I mean, you know, you're not, I was in no way ready to retire, and he was no way ready to kind of start, stop uh, being a good citizen.
0: Yeah. I also read uh, that you asked your parents to send you to boarding school to get away from your twin brother.
1: <laughs> that, that would be true. <laughs>
0: that would be true. That's kind of rare.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Why'd you do that? Well, because, <clears throat> so I grew up in Durham and uh, was one of five. There was two sets of twins. I have an identical twin brother. I have a younger brother who was two years younger. And I had sisters who were a year younger, so there was five of us in three years. And we lived in a very small house. And, um, you know, and my twin brother and I, I mean, we, I mean, we were, trust me, we were very much identical. Yeah. And to the point that people would call me Bick and him Dill, <laughs> because he was Dick and I was Bill. But they didn't know who was who, so they would just take a shot at it. <laughs> and so you know it kind of started to create a little bit of identity conflict. I didn't know who I was. So I figured the only way to really get to know who I was was to get out of Durham. Yeah. And I was, you know, fortunate that my parents, you know, could uh, afford to send me away to to a boarding school and they did. And I went to a military school. I went to a place called Macaulay in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is probably only famous because that's where Ted Turner went. Before he flunked out, <laughs> or kicked out, actually, yeah. I
0: should say. I find that that's pretty rare, though. I mean, you, mostly you find identical twins want to be together. I mean, is, is this? A, do you have an individual individual
1: streak about you that? Uh... I don't know. I mean, I, I'm very, very close to my twin brother, and I think distance makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I also read.
0: Um, it's all in the same article actually. It was fantastic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I want to find out what you read and where you read it. <laughs> <laughs> it was the New York Times. It was in your own Oh lives, Yeah, oh, is
0: that right? That was so, I remember that. I, also I read in that that you, you really wanted to attend the Darden School of Business for your MBA and you wanted to do it you wanted to get in and you didn't get in. But you wanted to get in so badly that you called the director of admissions on the phone to
1: tell him you made a mistake but they didn't admit you. That's true. That's a true story. So uh, after I graduated from Duke, I ended up going to work for a a small medical device firm. Great experience. We'll come back to that. But then decided that after being a salesperson for three years in the field, I didn't want to necessarily continue my career as a salesperson. And having worked for a very small medical device company, I got sort of the experience of... working with people in finance and the president and all that, but I was, had concerns about how the company was being run, so I decided, you know what, Probably if there's a good way for me to really kind of learn a lot about general management is if I can get into a good school. And at that point, you know, Harvard you know, had was a reputation for the case management program, Darden University of Virginia was the other program. and. Um, so I but I want I, I really like Charlottesville so I applied to Duke to Carolina and to UVA and you're right I sent in my uh, application and you know by uh, full admission I have never really done that well on the large standardized test and I knew that was going to be an issue mm-hmm. and sure enough, I get this nice letter telling me that that uh, that I was not being admitted, so I uh, said, you know what, I'm not going to just let that go. So I called the director of admissions, and I politely told the lady, I said, I think you've made a mistake. (laughs) I think I got the wrong letter, and I said, uh, (laughs) I'd uh, like to come down and tell you why I think you made a mistake, and I guess given the fact that I had the courage to do that, she said, "Well." Yeah, you know, we won't turn you away if you come down. And you can talk to us. So I did, and lo and behold, they got the letter right. So, <laughs> but you know, it's That's a good lesson because I, I've always sort of told people throughout my career that it's the, the analogy is when the it's when the door is closed, you got to find the window, and uh, and you never never give up. Yeah, I'm curious. Anyone ever done that to you? Um, yeah, there are people that have. Uh, that I know have wanted to work uh, with me. And um, there was a guy that I hired um, when I was at Medtronic, when I was running the the vascular division of Medtronic. There was this fellow, and then we'll forget this guy named Pat Macken, who um, ultimately became the head of the cardiac rhythm business for Medtronic and recently left to run a public company called BioLife. But he came out, uh, he was, I, I actually, when I first joined it, like I was living in Atlanta, and I was, then moved the family to Minneapolis, and then I <coughs> commuted to Santa Rosa. You know, go figure that. Wow. So, um, but I remember I was out in Santa Rosa, California, and it was this fellow, Pat Mackin who was brought to me as a candidate to run the AAA business. Um, and he, he uh, he showed up in California. I was supposed to meet with him like at a 8 o'clock on a Monday morning. And the guy um, at eight, like 7.59, he comes you know, into the, to my office, just dripping with sweat. And uh, if you knew where the offices were in Santa Rosa, we're, it's in the wine country, it's beautiful actually. And we were up on this hill and the hotel that we were staying was like a mile and a half down the bottom of the valley, and his car didn't show up. And he um, was destined to get there on time. And he went to West Point as an undergrad and a very fit guy, so he said to hell with it, and he just ran up this hill. <laughs> and he comes into my office, and actually, he was, you know, he, on paper, he wasn't the, kind of qualified. Yeah. And I sadly told him, it, I said, Pat, I, just, I think this is probably not going to work out. Well, he chased me down when I was back in Atlanta <laughs> told me he wanted to have breakfast at the OK Cafe, and we did. And anyway, <clears throat> I let him in. I didn't let him. I offered him the job, and <clears throat> he's been one of the best general managers I've ever worked with. That's great. And um, good. So
0: go through the window, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Should you ever try the window first rather than the door?
1: Well, you know, that's... You know, I, I don't know if I have, but I'm sure people will have, <laughs> and it doesn't always work. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong on the
0: dates here, but I, I did check. Your tenure as CEO of Medtronic was 07 to 2010? 2011. 2011, okay. So let's look at that record. In your first year, you had to pull the trigger on a massive recall of the Sprint Fidelis leads. That was probably, what, your first decision? Yep,
1: that was, I was, uh, I was made CEO in August of 2007. And in late October, um, I was forced, I was faced with a, one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make. And that was whether or not. Hold on, we'll get, we'll get there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> because this is a pattern.
0: Second year, you're there, the global financial system melts down.
1: Yes. And then that's in your economic thir-
0: in your third year, Congress passes the Affordable Care Act and ushers in the device tax. (laughs) First, you look back at that time. Do you you ever just pour yourself a drink or want to pour yourself a drink when you look at that time? And second, each of these pivotal moments, I I really want to
1: know what you learned during them. Well, first of all, I mean, it is what it is. And and some of us get lucky, and some of us don't. And my timing was not great. But in retrospect, I mean, those experiences um, really are experiences that I think really kind of help define who you are and define your leadership. And even though it was a very tough time, not just for me in Medtronic, but for the whole industry. And some some cases, you get a little bit sort of painted the color of what's happening in the industry. But But let me talk about you know what the lessons learned because the decision that um, that I ultimately had to make with regard to the Fidelis lead was one of the the toughest decisions. I mean, I say, I mean, it was one of the most untimely decisions. I mean, you got to understand. So I mean, here it was in August of 2007. You know, a guy that grew up in Durham, North Carolina. And started off as a sales rep for Carolina Medical, who they, ever the hell they are, then goes to business school, and then you know goes on this long journey of working with Eli Lilly and working with John Johnson, working with nope. Then you know I finally ended up at Medtronic as a head of their vascular business, and lo and behold, you know I'm ultimately tapped to be the CEO of the world's largest medical device company, and I. I mean, it was just such an honor and such a privilege to be able to now you know, be at the top of such a great company. And when I took over in 2007, uh, the company actually, it was an interesting period. Uh, for those of you who knew the company, um, back in the late 90s and the early 2000s when um, the financial sort of bubble, not the financial bubble, but when we had the... When the the whole markets were just at an all time high, and we, in that point, you could do these sort of financial transactions called pooling of interest, and so you could do these mergers with almost monopoly money. And so, Medtronic, you know, ended up buying a number of large companies and you know quadrupled its size. And in the, I came in right after that, and so the period that I was there until I became the CEO, we didn't do any transactions. We were all, we were doing basically integrating all the businesses that we had bought, and unfortunately, we really hadn't done a lot to re, sort of to fill the coverage with, with new technologies or new innovation. So I came in at a at a pretty interesting period, um, and so but anyway, here I am. I've just been given this great privilege of running this company. I went out on this to talk to the Wall Street sort of buy side analyst with my CFO and to my gratification, the stock market reacted very positively. The stock was going up, and um, I think there was a lot of excitement about maybe a new leadership style coming in. And then I come back after my, being on the road for about a month, and the gentleman that I mentioned to you, Pat Mackin, who is now running my cardiac rhythm business, he came to see me and said that, you know, Bill, we've got a problem. We have, uh, we have these reports that are largest product in all Medtronic, the implantable defibrillator, these leads that are used, used to basically connect to the generator that goes into the heart to stimulate the heart. He said we were getting uh, we got uh, reports that was an unusually high failure rate in a certain uh, center, and so I mean now that the reality is for all of you who may know about pacemakers and defibrillators is that you know these leads you know, are not safe. I mean they 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 will work. I mean ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, so you don't have to worry. But in some cases they can fracture, and you know and that. Have to replace them, and it's not. A, it's a very difficult, but it, it's a, but it's a doable operation. But I got this this uh, word that this lead was we had an, an unusually high failure rate, and so we made the decision to go out and interrogate all of the centers that were putting in defibrillators because we had the capabilities of doing that, and we found, in fact, that this lead was actually had a, a higher than uh, than our other device's failure rate. But compared to the competition, it was actually at about the same level, if not better. And so we were all you know, really trying to, to so all of this was kind of coming together as we were collecting information. And I remember it was about the same time that we have what we call the global heroes program. And one of the things that Medtronic did in Minneapolis is that every, you know, we, sponsored the marathon and as a part of the marathon we invited people who had Medtronic devices to come to Minneapolis and we honored them in terms of running in the race with their devices. And I remember I was sitting at uh, the luncheon that we had for the Global Heroes and I was sitting next to this young woman from Boston and she was you know, telling me, I said, well, you know, you're here to run in the race. What uh, I mean? What device do you have? And she said, "Well, I have an implantable defibrillator. I have a genetic disorder where I'm at risk for a sudden cardiac death." And she and I said, "Well, I trust everything has gone well." And she said, "Well, she said, um, unfortunately, uh, I had a lead fracture, and we had, uh, and the good news is that they were able to replace it, but it was a." pretty difficult operation and my heart just sunk you know because after ha- having been aware that we were having this you know this this issue and and then to have someone personalize it in front of me and so that so about a week later or so we you know we convened a, a really a big sort of internal think group of customers and a lot of different people and ultimately it became clear to me that we needed to do a recall. Now, doing a recall for an implantable defibrillator lead is probably one of the most severe things you could ever do because think about all the people who have a defibrillator if they now know that you're doing a recall. Now, when you do a recall, you don't go in and take everybody's device out. You essentially just put them on notice and then we had, we developed an algor- a software fix to be able to monitor it. But it was the toughest it was, uh, and it was interesting because in, at the same time that this was happening, one of our competitors actually had an issue with their leads, and they did not report this problem, and they had several patients die, and it became a New York Times front page article. Um, and so, I mean, I and it, so the market was very, the whole market was sensitized to this. And so I knew if I did this recall at this point in time, it would be a major news story. And but you know I didn't let anything get in the way of what I thought and what we all thought was the best thing for patients, notwithstanding the fact that our business would probably be severely impacted and stock price would probably just crash because of the you know the so uncertainty about what would happen, but nonetheless, you know, I went to the board of the directors and I said, "I'm going to make this. I made the decision. We're going to do a recall." And it was um, sure enough. And we had an analyst call the next Monday morning, told the street and everybody that we were doing this recall. Stock price we went from 57 to like 39. dollars um, A lot of pressure, you know, on did we make the right decision. And you know here I am 10 years later, and I will tell you that customers today still you know, applaud what we did and the way that we handled that And you know, in retrospect, it was absolutely the right thing to do. You saw a similar situation at Wyeth right with Fenfens? Yeah, I've, I've been in a couple of situations. I was at Eli Lilly in 1982 when they had you know, a osteoarthritic drug called Oriflex. I was at JNJ um and uh, well I wasn't there when they had the um, I had it when they when they had the issues with the screw top uh, uh, or the safety of the caps and then I was at, at at American Home products Wyeth when they had the problem with the fenfen diet pill drug so um but I've seen on the other cases I've been unfortunately aware of other situations when companies did not make that decision you know like one of our competitors who, who you know, tried not to, to, try to let things just kind of maybe play itself out and then patients die yeah. and then it becomes, you know, a real, real bad situation. So what's the back of the matchbook lesson on that? You know, the lesson is, is that, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to do what you think is the right thing for the right reason and... Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I mean, and I've always put patients first. I've always put, you know, the, the the concern for you know the people whose lives depend on what we do, and and I've I've always you know worked hard at you know garnering the trust you know of the people that I work with, our our customers, you know, our physician collaborators. And so the moral is, I mean, never compromise the trust. Any any sort of quick lessons
0: that you learned during the global meltdown of the economy?
1: uh, Yeah, I mean, the global meltdown of the economy is that, that was an interesting one because if you'd looked at the healthcare industry up until that time, you know, the healthcare industry in general had sort of been a very defensive stock, a defensive area, and I can't remember a time in my whole career when the economic sort of uh, cycles impacted the outlook, you know, on sort of life sciences. I mean it's rare that, you know, people would opt out of having a procedure done for fear that, because they couldn't pay for it. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I think the lesson there was um, that you, ultimately, you gotta keep your eye on the long run. You can't, I mean, just because, you know, the, there was, I mean, we were in a very fortunate position at Medtronic, we were generating a lot of cash And it would have been very easy for us at that point in time to just say, you know, we're not going to invest. We're going to kind of, we're just going to be very conservative. And in fact, it it was actually an opportunity because we had enough cash, even though our stock price was hit like everybody else's, we could afford to do deals. And in the four years that I was at Medtronic, I did over 25 deals and ended up buying some... Really, really uh, uh, exciting platform technology, which has fueled Medtronic in the last, you know, five years. You know, things like the transcatheter valves and things like, you know, our new cryocath, which is for radiofrequency abrasion of uh, atrial fibrillation. So, anyway, so you can't, you got to, you got to keep your eye on the long run. Yeah. Same go for the device tax lesson. Was there a, a yeah the device tax lesson I mean I was on the forefront of that whole negotiation during the Affordability Care Act and uh, you know, sadly it really soured me on Washington uh, in terms of um, just the way that decisions are made there and again you, some degree I mean you, you know you you do everything you think is the right thing to do to really try to educate people on the value of our industry, and yet some of the decisions get made, and as a consequence of trying to serve other purposes. And so, yeah. I don't know if I got any, i don't think I got any lessons out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a tradition at Medtronic that actually you told me about among
0: the uh, the men who occupy the corner office, and it involves exchanging of these symbolic gifts. You got a sword uh, from your... <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> and you gave your successor a globe. Uh, I'm wondering though, did, you're, did you get any actual advice from your predecessor about putting your own stamp on the company? And when you're taking over a company like that,
1: how difficult is it to to make it your own? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I. Think. He gave me the sword with the advice of this is what you use to fight the competition and to cut through the red tape, which I thought was, in some respects, I think good advice. Um, but um, the, you know, it wasn't really advice, but you know, one of the privileges of working at Medtronic mm-hmm. you know, was the fact that this company, which was founded by Earl Bakken in 1949, he was the guy that started or developed the first pacemaker, which he did in 1957, and for some of you who are kind of in your early stage startups, I mean, don't lose faith, because in 1957, Earl Bakken, who had developed this little battery-operated temporary pacemaker, um, was running out of money, and so he went to his board um, in 1960, um, and trying to raise money to fund the development of an implantable pacemaker. And the board, uh, essentially, and really, I say board, it was really kind of like angel investors. And the board said, look, I mean, we'll lend you the money or we'll put money into the company on one condition. And that is that you clearly articulate a mission for this enterprise. And, And so Earl wrote a mission in 1960. And this mission was about alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life. And you know, he talked about in that mission, you know, the respect for the individual, he talked about the focus on the patient, he talked about quality. And so uh, you know, the advice that my predecessor gave me was really very simple. I mean, it was it was really you know, to honor the mission and everything that we did. And, um, you know, we used to do these mission medallion ceremonies. This is one of the better parts of my job, one of the privileges of my job. That, you know, we would go around the world and we would hold a ceremony and we would talk about, you know, the founding of Medtronic and talk about when Earl wrote this mission and really what it meant, you know, as kind of the guiding principles of the company. And, you know, and that, I believe, is still why Medtronic is, in my judgment, one of the best companies in any, in any industry because of its solid foundation of its strong mission. So do you feel like you put your stamp on the company? Absolutely. I mean, I, um, you know, I've always been one who has um, believed that you know, innovation is the lifeblood of what we do. And you know, as I said, when I came into the company, um, we had basically acquired a lot of technologies, and I think, to some degree, maybe took a little bit of our eyes off the importance of really kindling that spirit within the enterprise. And I've often heard people talk about the fact that large companies can't innovate. And you know, I was I was the first, by the way, engineer. Um, other than Earl Bakken, who was the founder of the company, to be a CEO of the company. And I strongly, strongly believe you know, that at the end of the day, I mean, innovation is what is, is going to drive the success of this enterprise. And while we had acquired it in the late 90s and the early 2000s, I felt a responsibility to really kind of Refocus the enterprise and give them that sort of inspiration and encouragement that we could innovate internally. Uh, I see Bryant Moore, who's uh, one of my Medtronic colleagues, and he was in the advanced development group. And um, and so I spent a lot of time really encouraging people to kind of think out of the box. And but I, it, you know, you you have to realize that even though I mean, I think large companies can innovate. You also have to keep your eyes open for things that are happening outside. And so the real, I think the art is getting that balance right of internal and external. And if I look sort of where, when I left Medtronic and what's happened since then, I mean, you know, we've had remarkable success in the pipeline that we put in place. Most, half of it was internal and half of it was external. The MRI safe, so we developed when I was there, we improved our pacemakers and our defibrillators. We made them so that they were, they were MRI compatible. In the past, if you had a pacemaker, you couldn't have an MRI because the MRI would eat up the pacemaker, so we, internally developed these MRI-safe technologies. We developed a new diagnostic, an implantable diagnostic, which I believe is really the future of not just devices that treat, but of things you can do to better diagnose to ensure that you are then providing the best therapy. So we developed an implantable sensor, which is the size of a matchstick, that is, in its first year, became almost a $500 million business. And then we did a, a number of really important acquisitions, one of which was the transcatheter valve, the core valve. We acquired a company called CryoLife or CryoCath that makes an atrial fibrillation catheter system. And we have acquired a number of companies in the, the spine area. And so if I look at you know, what's happened since I left, I've always said the mark of a good leader, it's not so much what the company looks like when you're there, but what does a company look like two years or three years post your, your term? Because if, if, you, if, if you built the company where it's so dependent on you and if you leave and the company falls apart, then you're not a good leader. But if you put the things in motion such that when you leave, that the company has that momentum, that inertia, I think that's a real sign of a good leader.
0: Well, they're doing great, so you were a really good leader then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I remember um, I saw you uh, maybe three or four months after that you left Medtronic, and I gotta say that before and after was stunning because you looked so relaxed. <laughs> like, you were tan. You were like, you told me you just got off the golf course. You're the most relaxed guy, and you still are. You, not not to imply that you've gone back to that stress period, but I mean. You looked really content and really happy, and really like you'd done what you needed to do. But you, you now you're like you're the busiest retired guy I've ever met. I mean, wh- why did you? Why did you jump right back in the game? Why did you go to Corps?
1: Well, as I said, I, I mean, I. It was Pat said this, made the comment about. I mean, you have to love what you do, and I absolutely love what I do. I mean, it is it, it to me. There's nothing more sort of exciting, there's nothing more challenging, there's nothing more rewarding um, than sort of being on the front line. And, And I took some time off before I jumped back into it, but I had, you know, kind of done most everything. I mean, having even before I joined Medtronic, I was in Atlanta and I did a venture-backed startup, which we took public, and it was very successful. So I, you know, run a small venture-backed company. I had the privilege of running, you know, large divisions of other big companies, and I had the privilege of running Medtronic. And I have to say, um, I came became a little soured uh, when I was running Medtronic, you know, at. the dynamics of being a large public enterprise. And um, to some degree, I think the the public model is, I'm not gonna go so far to say it's completely broken, but it's fractured. There's so many sort of voices that are pushing you um, in so many directions. Sadly, I mean, as a public company, the the shareholder sort of activism today is is really I think working its way into the boardrooms and CEOs in some cases are you know, they're running the company for the wrong constituents and so I um you know I was always interested in the private equity model and so when I was leaving Medtronic, I knew that I wanted to do something in private equity quite honestly I wasn't necessarily looking to go back and run out of the company. But I wanted to have the experience of having the resources, um, even almost like a Medtronic, but to be able to really find ways of funding innovation in a more of a private way. And so I, uh, you know, I ended up going to work with one of the largest private equity groups, TPG, out in San Francisco. We have about fifty billion dollars under management. And I ended up; they ended up buying a company and sort of. This region it was actually in Atlanta, and it it just it looked everything looked pretty interest I mean, pretty exciting about it at night and um, and it was a it was a big transaction it was about a two and a half billion dollar deal for them and so um, i said look i 'll come down and sort of get it started well, three and a half years later we're it's it started <laughs> but uh, it didn't finish, right. So, um, but I had, a, I had a blast, I mean, it was, it, was in, it was a different area, it was in the world of diagnostics. I'm really yeah. excited about, I mean, I think that we're in an era now that technology is, we can do things with technology that enable us to, I think, do a much better job in really understanding what the underlying disease issues are so that we can then titrate therapy in a more effective way. So. Anyway, it was a combination of things that kind of got me excited, and um, but I didn't just do that. I mean, I went yeah. uh, on several boards, and and I also, as you know, Brian, I devoted a good percentage of my time to doing God's work in Washington. Yeah. you know, with the uh, with the FDA, the MDIC, uh, right? Yeah, consortium. So it was more fun at Inucorp,
0: perhaps, than Medtronic, or
1: was it? No, I would say so. I, I look I loved it at Medtronic. I yeah. mean, I'm not gonna make any bones about it. It was uh, I mean it one of the greatest experiences you could ever imagine. I mean it was it was a tough period. I mean there's no question about it, and it was highly, highly stressful. Yeah. And I have a few witnesses. <laughs> you know, I'm very blessed tonight to have two of my three children. In the back, my daughters, Elizabeth and Julia, who were in Minneapolis during that experience. And uh, they can attest, you know, that it was tough. In fact, my daughter, Elizabeth, I never will forget, she said to me once, Daddy, you don't know me. <laughs> but uh, You drove around the block a few times? No, but...
0: Uh, <laughs> No, I would think maybe you wore off the treads on those tires Uh, before you went home, so you didn't take it home. There's a bit of a pattern, though, I see in your career. You know, you you leave Wyatt. You actually had to sell the division you were in charge of, right? Right. Um, And then you joined a startup. And then, you know, you look at sort of the bookend experiences, CEO of a major company. Then you go back and kind of jump into this private venture. Um, What would you say is your favorite experience? If you kind of
1: look back at, at all those... Different places. That's a tough one. What's my favorite experience? You know, I have to say, um, I really enjoyed the startup. I enjoyed, you know, I did the startup late in my sort of career. Um, I had joined Eli Lilly and Slash Gaiden. I spent 13 years there. And then I went to Johnson & Johnson. And then I went to American Home Products. And then um, when I was at American Home, we had the problem with FinFen. At that point, we had three big companies, which I was the corporate vice president in charge of, and one was called Sherwood Davidson Geck, a company called Quintiles, I mean, um, Quinton, not uh, Quintiles, Quinton Instruments, and another company called Stores. And so the CEO at that point, when FinFan hit, said, Bill, I know I just hired you six months ago to run this whole group, but Unfortunately, I think we're gonna have a little bit of a legal liability going forward, so we're gonna need to sell your division. And um, he therefore said, uh, I want you to basically work with investment bankers and we're gonna sell these three companies. And it was kind of an interesting, because the largest was Sherwood Davis and Gack, and as soon as we announced that we were looking for strategic buyers, I got a call from a guy in New Hampshire, that would be Dennis Kozlowski, Okay. And that would be Tyco. And at that point, you know, they were just sort of on a tear and he said, We'll pay you whatever you want in cash. And so anyway, that was a short lived deal. <laughs> that was pretty good. And then we sold the the other two companies. But anyway, so then after after that I was I was literally I mean, I I, I think I was um I, you know, I was, had been in large companies, and then I didn't know what I was going to do after American Home Products. and that's when a friend of mine who was in Atlanta had started this company, the interventional Cardiology Space, and he uh, asked me to, if I would consider coming down to see if I could if I would work with them to run this company called Novost. And it was it was, uh, having been in large companies, and there's a lot of sort of inertia and you always wonder if what you do really makes a difference. Um, And so I was kind of intrigued by the idea of going to a a small company where I mean whatever happens is because you made it happen and Pat I think is a a good example of that. Um, And so I went down to Atlanta and I mean I was involved in everything and it was it was it was a lot of fun to take a concept and to be able to get it through the FDA, and then in our first year, we did almost 75 million in sales, which is unheard of, wow. but the most rewarding thing was our number one competitor in that space was Johnson & Johnson, who I despised, and so, you know, I... Uh, I've, I've, I've spent my career going after J&J, <laughs> and uh, I have to say, I'm not bragging, but I've, you know, I'm three for, I'm three and O. <laughs> so, I think you might try for four and O? No. No?
0: no? Uh-uh, well, probably. you never
1: know. <laughs> I mean, I'm always looking for that next one. So. All right. So, um, we're going to try a little
0: bit, I want you to try to answer this, you know, uh, without too much thought, but you made a lot of deals. And I, I want to know which ones. Is there one that you really holds a special spot for you? You know, what's one that you really hold up with pride, and what's the one that you sort of say,
1: "I kind of wish I had that one back." Well, I can start with the one I wish I had back, which was uh, when I was uh, president of Medtronic, not yet the CEO. Um, we acquired a company called Kyfon, Mm -hmm. which was a, basically it's a kyphoplasty business. And and it it was a company that had acquired a company. And we were really interested in the company that they acquired. And um, I learned a big lesson that, uh, and they were a public company, and I learned a lesson that you really need to do a lot of due diligence when you do a big deal. And we didn't have the, the opportunity to, do, uh, to really do much due diligence, particularly on the company that we, were, that we were really interested in because they were now buried in the public company. And it was a disaster. Well, at least they never beat you over the head with that. <laughs> oh, yeah, <they> never. <laughs> My board reminded me about that. Every single solitary <laughs> board meeting for... Four years. They wanted to hear about Kai-Fi. Oh
0: my!
1: Yeah. Now how about the? Let's go to the good one. Yeah. Let's it talk doesn't about have to be the, the best. One. Yeah. It can just be one that you like. You know, I I've been. It's that's a hard question. I mean, I, I have to tell you, um, one of my best friends. My best friend is here, Kim Westmoreland, who I uh, chair his company, a company called Karenetics, um, and. So, I've done a lot of different things in my career, and this is what I love about what I do, because there's always something else that you find that you never thought you would be doing. And about a year ago, um, uh, there's a company in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, called Tengion. Some of you may have known it. It's a regenerative medicine company. In fact, I first came across Tengion when I was at Medtronic, when I was a CEO. We uh, put $20 million into a program that they had for chronic kidney disease, which is really kind of fascinating for patients who are late stage kidney failure. They essentially had developed a technique for biopsying that patient's kidney, essentially taking that biopsy and isolating certain progenitor cells, and then putting them into a bioreactor and then putting them back into the patient. And anyway, fast forward, I had left Medtronic. Um, the company was doing another program in tandem with that and at the end of the day it was not well managed and they ran out of money and they ultimately went bankrupt. But this program for the chronic kidney disease um, was, I mean, actually it was, they had just completed their phase one clinical study and even though we didn't have the results everything looked like it was going to be really good and so Kim Came to me and said, look, because he lives in Winston, this company's just gone bankrupt. And said, and I said, Well, I know him very well. And so anyway, we put together a, a group of North Carolina investors and we bought the company out of bankruptcy. And with the intent of raising $25 million to do the phase two clinical study. And You know, we bought the company and then we were able to then harvest the phase one data and the phase one data was just off the charts good. I mean, we were really, I mean, this looked like it could be a dramatic therapy for patients with chronic kidney disease. And so we thought we could go out and just raise $25 million. Well, I spent a lot of last year working to try to raise $25 million dollars and with what, I mean, here it was, here's the company, by the way, Tingiana had, that was $400 million of capital in this company, all sort of put into a lot of basic research. And they had built a $15 million class one manufacturing operation. So we bought all of this for like a million and a half dollars. But with the idea of spending $25 million to do the phase two study. and But we had to then fund the operation while we were trying to find the investors. So it wasn't just one and a half million, it turned out to be about four or five million. Um, And I was shocked at how, I mean, how hard it was to get capital. Uh, In fact, we didn't get capital. And at the end of last year, we were like, I had to go to the investors one more time to just try to keep this thing on life support. And lo and behold, one of the groups that we were looking to lead the financing came out of the woodwork and said, we don't want to lead it, we want to buy it. And at 6.15 tonight, we closed the deal. (laughs) Oh, you old dog. That's a true story. (laughs) So, Kim, we're going to have a glass of champagne after this, I can tell you that. All right, you're buying, right? (laughs) That's awesome. And the good news is, <laughs> this trial is going to get done, which is the most important thing. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's the most important thing.
0: Okay, we're running really, we're probably a little bit behind time, so I just want to be, be really concise on this. <laughs> you're, you're at the point in your career where you need to begin thinking about the, me- the next generation of med tech innovators like you. You know, you look at uh, your 25 years in the corner office, and... You know, two pieces of advice give the next generation of CEOs to remember.
1: Two and, pieces of advice, yeah, and they gotta be
0: like, you know, don't take
1: wooden nickels. And uh, well, first, I I think the most important thing, you know, and it's not just for a CEO, but it's for people in our leadership role. It's you know, I, people often ask me about how I've gotten to where I've gotten to, and I think a big part of my success has been that. You know, I have always sort of maintained a a good balance of kind of EQ and IQ of humility and confidence. And I just really, my advice to people I don't care how smart you are, I mean, really just maintain a sense of humility and and be a bit humble. So that's one. And then I think the other is um, you just. I mean, you've got to find something that really excites you. I mean, I've been so blessed in my career. I mean, I, I still do what I do, and probably, as you said, I'm as busy today as I've ever been because I just absolutely love, you know, the working with people and working on things that are going to change people's lives. So you find that right combination of something that you're excited about and then kind of surround yourself with people that that you want to be with and lose that sense of humility. Excellent.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank a you. Round of applause. That was awesome.